Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. As I'm sure you all know, this is a podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive politics has a lot to offer the modern world. Um, I'm your host, Heather Shah, in case you don't know me. I've actually lost my badge, so now you all know who I am. And I'm joined live at Progress Political Weekend 2019 by a fantastic group of guests uh, who've trekked all the way up to Grantham. Uh, first is Chair of Progress and die-hide Liverpool fan, Alison McGovern MP. Hi, Ali. Hi. I'm very excited because as I was walking in, the former podcast host, Connor Pope, who's now gone to work for 442 magazine, handed me a copy of this, the latest (laughs) 442 magazine that features Liverpool's finest Virgil van Dijk on the cover. So I feel like I've had influence despite him uh, leaving progress. (laughs) Very exciting. Uh, We're also joined by legendary Labour peer, Roger Liddell. Hi, Roger. Hi. Fantastic. Journal extraordinaire, Gabby Hinsliff. Hello. Nobody gave me a free magazine on the way in. I just like to point <laughs> We'll sort you out a little later. And an organiser so good, she's wanted on both sides of the Atlantic, Pearl Sanger. That's very generous. Lovely Hello, to everybody. I'm really excited to be um, here. So today we're joining you from Stoke Rochford, which is a place with loads of Labour history. So it was owned by the National Union of Teachers and has been used as a location for training events for various Labour things for many, many years. So... In my opinion, it's a great place to talk about where we've come from and where we're headed. As a little icebreaker, just talking about where we've come from, I'd like to tell you all a little bit about my journey and maybe ask you some quick fire questions. Is that all right, Alison? I know you hate quizzes. I, I do hate quizzes, but I think we've discovered I hate quizzes, but I can cope with quick fire questions. Okay, yeah. So maybe all future quizzes need to be rebranded as yeah. quick fire questions and we'll be all right. <laughs> okay, that's what we need to rebrand. And um, if you haven't yet, please listen to Friday's podcast where I interviewed Ali all about why she became an MP, um, what kind of music taste she likes. And she's met very luckily and lovelyly. Is that worth it? Um, let's go with it made us a playlist and it's called henna's pod list and yeah. i'll be updating it so yeah. we, we will we'll attach the pod list to the podcast so that people can podcast pod list yeah yeah and i realized i just said podcast like i was northern then um, <laughs> let's just ignore that <laughs> stick with me henna you'll be you'll be northern before you know it um so it's a quick icebreaker i want to talk a little bit about our journey so it's a quiz that i've called direct quote from me in the back of the car this is like mario kart but it's shit um, <laughs> so stephanie and i were kindly driven up to grantham last night by our fantastic colleague and 
Twitter extraordinaire, uh, Katie Curtis. Alison, can I just ask you, how long roughly do you think it takes a normal person to get from Westminster to Grantham in a car? In a car, oh my goodness, maybe about two hours. Yeah. Uh, can any of you guess how long it took us last night? I want to guess seven. Katie's not quite that too, slow. We didn't walk to Grantham. Four and a half. You're almost right, about four. Fantastic. And <laughs> given the length of our journey, can any of you tell me how many boroughs of London we drove through? I know the answer to this, so I can't. In order to get here. In order to get here? Yeah. Well, I, I well, I... well, well, in order to leave London. So normally you go up the Edgware Road, which Katie doesn't really like going up. So you go through three and they're Westminster, Brent and Barnet. How many did we go through? Roger? Well, that's three. No, no, that, <laughs> that's how many we normally go through. How, oh, well. how many do you think we went through, given oh. the fact it took us over four hours to get here? Well, did you go through Camden? And, we did go uh, through Camden. Uh, Ding! Yeah. So you then went through, you went through Camden and Islington yes. and Haringey. Yes. And, uh, Can we keep going, Roger? And, and is it Barnet? We didn't go through Barnet, no. Enfield. You've got three. Enfield, Enfield four. Enfield. Yeah, you're almost there. That must be it. <laughs> Audience participation is very much encouraged. People uh, shouting Mornington Crescent, can, uh, can, they can come again. Um, I've written down, we went through Westminster, Camden, Islington, Hackney, Haringey, Waltham Forest and Enfield. Oh, we had a great diversion through Hackney. In fact, I used to live in Stoke Newington, so I got to see my old house and waved at it on the way. Um, and uh, you see Steph Lloyd there at the back. As you can imagine, very much enjoyed our trip. So I'm just going give, to give, put your hands together to Steph Lloyd for not killing anyone. In <laughs> okay, um, let's get the serious bit. Uh, so on the regular podcast, we talk about a lot of things, policy, politics, occasionally like quite how posh I managed to sound on recording. Um, but one thing- Getting get more northern by the day though. <laughs> Slowly but surely. It was a process started by Connor Pope, and I'm really happy that you're continuing it, Ali. Yeah. Um, so I really want to talk about the uncertainty and the instability that we're seeing in our politics. Um, so we've got the meaningful votes next week, or at least I hope we've got the meaningful votes next week. Um, and we've got lots of people here with lots of juicy insider knowledge. So um, maybe, Gabby, you want to start? Where are we now and what's going to happen next? In a mess, and I don't know, as the, uh, the, uh, the nutshell version of that. But yeah, we're coming up to a week when either, I think I've been saying for about two years, we're coming up to the week where everything will be decided. And then it, <laughs> and then it isn't. And we go, yeah, yeah, but okay, the real crunch point is next week. But um, we are now, the most frightening thing anybody said to me this week was that it's now less than 500 hours until we leave the EU. So that's 20 days until we leave without currently a workable plan. And I mean, I don't know about you, but it's taken me longer than that to get around to fixing the bulb that's gone in the bathroom. So the idea <laughs> that that is enough time to conclude the negotiations, get it through Parliament, ratify all the rest of the it does not make sense to me in the slightest. So I suspect, and I, Alison will have her own views, but everything is pointing towards a delay. 
and pointing towards that as the rational, sane, pragmatic thing. Uh, so obviously this being Brexit, that's not what will happen. Something else will happen instead. But it looks to me as if we are heading for Theresa May losing the vote on Tuesday. And then the only logical option if Parliament doesn't want no deal is to delay things. But the question becomes, for how long? I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think the paradox about the people seem to think that if Parliament votes through Theresa May's deal this week, that that's the end of Brexit, as it were. In fact, the biggest argument for voting against her deal uh, is that it promises years and years and years of uncertainty. And we're going to have, a, if we do, if the deal does go through, we may have a pause for six months while uh, our European friends, you know, elect the next president of the commission and who's going to negotiate the, tra tra the trade deal with us. All that will have to be decided. But the, 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 the divisions that we're seeing about what kind of relationship outside uh, the EU we want to have are going to be very bitter and going to continue for years to come. Uh, and if you want to stop it, the only way is to fight it now, fight for a referendum and stay. I think that Gabby's right about the sensible thing not necessarily being the thing that, that happens. The problem with the delay is that there has to be a purpose for the delay. And it's not just a sort of technical thing that the European Union, you know, they'll let us delay, but they need a reason why. But also, if, if there is no reason why, then we're just stuck in Theresa May's kind of gerbil wheel of, let's have a bit more time, let's have a bit more time, let's have another vote, let's have another vote. I mean, we were supposed to deal with this before Christmas. We were supposed to have this nailed uh, by the first week in December. They then pulled that vote halfway through the debate mm -hmm. and then went on to lose uh, the vote on the deal by, as we all know, by over 200 votes. So I think what Theresa May wants to do is to have a delay, but to have a delay so that her strategy continues, which is keep going until I win my vote. Um, and I just think that's absolute madness. I think Roger's right that we have to fight for an alternative. And I and a large number of Labour MPs had been trying to talk about kind of EA options. Maybe there's a compromise on uh, single market customs union. Maybe we should explore that as a compromise. I have to say, the Prime Minister was pretty clear that she is not interested because that will damage irreparably the Conservative Party because the hard Brexiteers will think that's Brexit in name only. And that's why she won't agree to it. Now, I think about it and think about the damage it would do to the Tory party and cannot see a downside. <laughs> but I'm not the Prime Minister. So I think there's a lot of discussion at the moment about whether there's a compromise on sort of soft Brexit, EEA, single market customs union. And the answer to that is, there is numerically, but the Prime Minister has to want to do it. And she doesn't. So in the end, uh, we have very few options. But... The public are increasingly absolutely desperate for somebody to be an adult and to step forward and say, this is madness and we have to stop this. Um, Brexit as a process, I mean, we started badly and made it worse. Mm -hmm. 
So we now have to all be adult, I think, and find a way to bring this to a conclusion. Could I just come back? Uh, the the so-called Norway Compromise, you know, being in the customs union and single market. Well, I voted for that right at the start or after the referendum, that this was the way to have a compromise. I now think that it's actually a very, very difficult compromise to make works work. And I think what the Labour advocates of it, I don't think are being fully frank about what it means. Uh, because I think it means, first of all, you have to abide by European law, in which you have no say uh, in, in making it. Mm -hmm. And secondly, that um, I'm convinced that with a big country like Britain, we're not Liechtenstein, uh, that, the, that uh, the EU will insist that if we're going to be fully part of the single market, we have free movement. Now, I personally... I'm strongly in favour of free movement, so I'm not worried about that. But I, don't, I think we have to be honest that that's what Norway involves. Um, and so if it involves all of that, why not just stay in? What, what, is, what on earth is the point of, a, of what Teddy Blair calls a pointless uh, but not painful uh, Brexit? I just don't see the point of it. I, I have to agree with... Um, both of your points actually in different ways. This has been really interesting for me because I actually left uh, just a couple of days before Brexit, actually exactly one week before I flew back to California for uh, a couple of uh, years uh, was the day that, that Joe was brutally murdered. And, you know, I, I agree fully that we need a second referendum. And one of the arguments I keep hearing from MPs that are wavering on that idea is the divisiveness um, that it will uh, contribute uh, divisiveness to, to an already difficult situation. Um, and I, I have to say, what, what's the difference? I, I don't see a difference. I hoped, in that week before I left, I went to two vigils. One was for Joe Cox and one was um, for the Orlando shooting that happened just a couple days later. And what we're seeing both in America and here is this horrendous dichotomy of um, political discourse that is either far left or far right. We need to do what we can to fix that. And, and I don't think that having a second referendum is gonna contribute to that any more than, than it already has been. So I agree that absolutely. Um, we need to be fighting for an alternative, and to me, that alternative is also a second referendum. Okay, fantastic. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the broader polarization that we see in our politics. So, Gabby, I know you've written a lot about sort of anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and the far right, and how social media fits into this landscape. And I know there are people here in the room who have suffered abuse, particularly online, um, from both the far left and the far right. Um, I just want to know what your thoughts are on the polarisation that we see in our country more broadly, but also in political discourse, especially online. Yeah, and that's obviously something that isn't unique to this country. I mean, as you'll know, you, the US is the obvious example, but there are examples all the way across Europe. And I think it's it's really hard to disentangle in your head how much of this is just something that was always there and maybe has been brought to the surface either by 
the state of our politics generally or by something structural, by the fact that, for example, did people, did an awful lot of people always hold pretty hideous, pretty unpleasant views that before they only mentioned within their friendship circles or said in the pub and you never knew about it. And it's just that now that everyone can shove it on Facebook, we know maybe all we're doing is seeing something that was always there that we kind of kidded ourselves wasn't. And maybe, or maybe there's an element of that plus an element of once it's out there and normalized, people think it's okay. People think it's, I mean, I really worry about people who are sort of coming of age online and encountering this stuff that seems normal because it's everywhere and um, seems socially acceptable. But I think, and I think all of those sort of structural causes are worth thinking about. I think you can't get away at the end of the day from the fact that I am really shocked and saddened and depressed by the number of politicians on both sides of the divide who encourage, condone and tacitly accept it and bring it. If you hear Chris Williamson, to pluck an example at random. <laughs> any example. Any example. Or Boris Johnson or whoever it is articulating ideas that are not a million miles removed, frankly, from what you can find in some of the grimmer recesses of um, internet or when you hear people falling over themselves to make excuses for someone who said or done something pretty atrocious but they're on your side of the political argument so let's pretend they didn't mean it or they were misunderstood or they're being smeared or they're uh, you know I think you cannot get away from the endorsement that's come down from on high and I honestly don't know how you roll back the tide of that but I think we urgently need an answer to that question. Yeah, I mean, this is something that um, this is something that I wrestle with all the time. The kind of Michelle Obama um, command that, like, when they go low, we go high. Uh, I absolutely endorse and agree with. However, like, we're getting beaten um, with that strategy at the moment. So, if you look at the kind of just the way that there's it's it's been endorsed by other people as gabby said from on high the 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 tone that i mean um who's that guy? mark francois the tory mp of people yeah. seeing him oh my goodness i mean re really seriously lowering the tone and so we have to have an answer to that and and yes it can be being accountable for our own behavior but it doesn't feel like enough. It doesn't feel like enough. There has to be more than that. And I, I struggle with what it is, uh, kind of standing back and, and trying to maintain your own standards doesn't feel like enough anymore. Um, Pearl, yeah, I know yeah. you've worked a lot in the US and you've recently come back to the UK. Honestly, which one of us in the deepest shit? This is all a hot mess. <laughs> like, it is a hot mess. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, I was a field director on the Clinton campaign and thank God for all of my Labour Party colleagues that came to support in those last crucial weeks because on election night, I kind of saw where it was going. And um, I'll never forget <laughs> a friend uh, who, who flew over said, is America really going to elect a man that said it's okay to grab a woman by the pussy? And I just said, unfortunately, I think that's where we're headed. Um, I, I, 
I think I was so numb by that. I, I just, I'm, I was beside myself and frankly, I still am. There wasn't a day that went by on the doorstep where I didn't hear someone say something like, well, we can't have Hillary Clinton because she'll she'll be on her period and she'll press the nuclear button. I mean, God, such I wish I had that utter, yeah. utter garbage. Um, and here, you know, one of the things I always thought growing up between the two places was that at least here, there's a debate when when there when I was in university in Swansea, I remember there were a number of demonstrations, um, you know, hugely Islamophobic groups. Um, we had Nazis out at the weekends, you know, as their their crews began to grow. But we always had a thousand more people there, and I always thought to myself, at least this debate is happening in the streets instead of the kind of institutional racism that exists everywhere, but is really sort of too taboo to talk about in the US. Um, my mind changed on that a little bit, I think two years ago. Mm. Um, and honestly, I, I can't say which one is in deeper trouble. I think it's both, it's awful. I think there, because of the, um, the office of the presidency has always been held to a higher standard. And just going from President Obama to President Tangerine face, I just <laughs> I like that I don't tangerine know. face. And here I think it's it's that discussion about how how do we fix this? I don't know what the answer is, but it is is it's hard to watch so many people in our communities so divided. Um, and I absolutely agree with Gabby, like we need to find an answer to it. Mm. I don't know what it is either, but I do know that discussions like discussions on how to fix it start in places like this room right now, because mm. I think that we're lacking a moderate and center left proper, um, proper discussion on values. And, and I think we need to move away from this. I'm on this side and I'm on this side and I won't meet you in the middle. I think a lot of people, a lot of British public and the US public are waiting for people that are willing to reach across the mm. aisle and work together, so. Um, Roger, I know you've had a long political career. <laughs> Have we ever been as divided as you think we are now? Well, the long political career is a polite way of putting it, that you're, you're quite old. Well, what did you um, want to say? Uh, what, 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 if I could just add a, a bit of perspective. Mm. You know, I first became politically active in the 1960s. Um, and in the 1960s, um, you had far more overt racism mm. uh, on the doorstep uh, when you go out canvassing than you ever do today. And I think in that, I think... British society is a much more tolerant society of all, in all kinds of different ways uh, than it was 50 years ago. Um, and I think you've got to remember that when we, when we talk mm. about that. You know, the, the, there were people who put, you know, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs in their window, in, their, in the windows of boarding houses. Um, uh, Enoch Powell made uh, a speech in night, which was... Uh, which actually made me take part in my first ever political demonstration, the Rivers of Blood speech, 
uh, which was extraordinarily, you know, using language of uh, which, which uh, I think uh, uh, w w was really awful. Um, and uh, even Nigel Farage uh, never sort of got down to that level in the same way. Mm. Um, so I think you've got to have perspective about it. I think a lot, uh, the, the, the crucial uh, things about it are that, First of all, the political class mustn't give way to uh, the, a kind of slogan, populist slogan politics. We've always got to try, as the political class, in my view, to, t to take the electorate seriously and try and produce balanced arguments uh, for, uh, for, for what uh, we are standing for. Um, so we, we mustn't... Uh, uh, sink to the levels of the Trumps and Farages uh, in offering simplistic uh, slogans. And the second point is we've got to fight uh, for uh, a, an independent and objective media. And I think that uh, actually the, um, the, the, the BBC, which, for which I have huge admiration, is in part itself responsible for the coarsening of politics. If you look at the, the programme Question Time, mm -hmm. um, uh, when it first started out 40 years ago, uh, you used to get a kind of, you know, there's a, a group of four mm -hmm. politicians from different backgrounds having a very civilised uh, but quite vigorous debate uh, about the issues of the day. Now what you have is shouting and screaming from the audience, uh, people uh, going for applause all the time with simple statements. And I just think that is the wrong political culture. And I think that those of us who are involved in politics have a big responsibility to try and change it. Um, question time is Jeremy Kyle for posh people. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, <laughs> it is, I have, I, actually Jeremy Kyle's probably, you know, better in, anyway. Um, it's more interesting. Exactly. And I, I swore that I would not go on it until Dimbleby had retired. And I mean, this is like supposing they would ask me, right? But then it was really interesting because I took, got to take part in um, the trials for the new Question Time oh, wow. presenters. This is not a secret. It has been a matter of public record, although it was supposed to be a secret at the time. But anyway, Fine. some journalists found out somehow. I don't know. <laughs> um, but it was really interesting because seeing the different presenters kind of putting their different styles across and they were all trying to kind of make a case, I think, for doing it in quite a different way. Unfortunately, I, I admire Fiona Bruce immensely, but unfortunately, I I think the programme hasn't fundamentally changed. And I think that she should be allowed to fundamentally change it. I think people don't want the shouting anymore. You know, I think if you look at, I mean, does anybody listen to Emma Barnett on uh, Five Live? Mm -hmm. She's much better. She's much better. Uh, she, she doesn't just try to catch people out. She asks them in-depth questions. It's quite hard to be interviewed by her, but she gets to the heart of the matter because she does it in a calm and measured mm. way that she takes enough time to do it. And I think, I think Roger's right. I think we've got to really think about that. I mean, it's a bit hard when you're a politician, you know, it, but I would just say that the experience of different TV and radio programs 
tells me that some are getting it right and some it just feels absolutely ruinous it feels like nobody gets anything good out of it and it's just shock jockery and that's got to end that's the only journalist on the panel I feel like I should probably, <laughs> probably take some responsibility for the rest of my profession here. I mean, all of what you said is right. I feel exactly the same about watching Question Time. I don't watch it anymore for that reason, um, although it's supposed to be my job. And I think you should, you know, to be honest, print has the same problem. There was all that fuss a while ago about sort of terribly bloodthirsty metaphors being used by MPs about stabbing each other in the back. You know, all, I won't go through the stabbing back and nooses stuff. Mm. Um, but we were part of that problem, let's be honest. You know, you, you choose which quotes to run. You choose who you're going to ask. You know there are two or three MPs that you can go to who will say, you know, something terribly bloodthirsty that you can stick in a headline and there are two or three MPs who will give you a, a reasoned moderate view of where the Conservative Party is now and um, people make their choices <laughs> and one makes a headline and one doesn't but actually as journalists there comes a point where you have to step back and say are we giving airtime to nutters who will say anything for a headline or are we throwing any light on what we're meant to be talking about and the trouble is that asking a couple of nutters will get you possibly on the front page and explaining what the hell's getting going on will get you possibly on page 31. And that is to do with what audiences consume mm. and how hard it is to get people's attention for politics, especially when, to be honest, the same story has been running for two years and hasn't changed mm. since the beginning, which is Brexit isn't sorted yet. By the time you're on year two of running that story, you know, you're looking mm. for extra things to say. I think there's a, there's, there's a real problem there and I'm not trying to evade responsibility for it yeah. by saying that. I think from that, we should talk a little bit more, move past Brexit isn't sorted yet, uh, and think a little bit more about the causes of Brexit um, and Labour's role in all this. Now, going forward, no matter what happens, whether we sort of continually end up in this Brexit limbo or whether we get public vote, or whether we get general election or whether we leave, whatever, um, we will need to find solutions to the problems that we clearly have. And this... Um, the show really starting to be this week. I wake up and as a young person in politics, I hate myself. So I turn on Radio 4 and I'm like, oh God, who is it today? And I listen. But there was a really fantastic interview with a head teacher from a girls' school um, who basically said, I've got no money left. Uh, I end up cleaning the toilets. Uh, and then she said, I had to let my deputy head go. The girls feel so bad for me that they come along and they help me with the hoovering. Now, I'm sure in like a week's time, the Tory party will turn around and be like, yes, let's get all young women hoovering. That's great, big society. <laughs> um, but it's clearly a big problem. And she also said that the science department has about £1.50 per head per year to provide equipment to its students. Now, if we're trying to invest in STEM and become sort of the green economy of the future, I don't know how many Bonson burners you can buy with one pound fifty a year, but it's probably about, it's about half. Four. It's about four. Four Bonson burners. Yeah. Well, that's more than I, I thought heard it would the be. Same interview, and I looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> you learn a lot. Yeah, yeah. I love having other nerds on the panel. Um, so, in that context, I was wondering what you all thought about actually solving the causes of Brexit, which is the kind of lack of investment in public services that we've seen. Yeah, I think, I think this is a really interesting one because actually um, it, you might, we might think that um, 
Brexit is just a distraction from important issues like school funding. Whereas actually, I think most people think now that the austerity policies of George Osborne and David Cameron had quite a lot to do with Brexit. Um, the uh, socialist clarion that is the Financial Times has done a whole investigation into the geographical impacts of uh, the cuts to local authorities and, and other public services and how that really concentrated in parts of the country that voted for Brexit. Now, it's not the entire picture because there's quite a lot of people in wealthy parts of Hampshire that suffered no such austerity uh, that also voted for Brexit. So we shouldn't left, let them off the hook. Um, but the fact that the state withdrew, I think, from a lot of places at the same time as the private sector was going through uh, a reorganisation, to say the least, that meant that people were likely to lose, like in their local area, they were likely to lose some council offices, perhaps the local tax office would go, the court service would shut the magistrate's court, the banks had to question whether they could really have a bank branch here. I mean, Roger, um, in Cumbria, this must be an absolutely profound problem. You can sort of get away with it in places like Liverpool and Manchester and Sheffield, where you've got big conurbations. But for the towns outside those big conurbations, it's like the withdrawal of the state and the private sector from the institutions that kept places going has given people a sense that like where they live is going downhill and fast. And so if Brexit is like the biggest protest vote ever in our country's history, I think people really did have something to protest at. So, I mean, what do we do about it? I mean, reinvest is obviously the short answer, but how? Because we can't we can't just try and put back what's been lost. I think we have to do it um, in a way that addresses what's going to happen in, in the future. And I would personally make a pitch for libraries being the place that we should begin, because mm. I think that if you really want to have a world where older people are learning as well as younger people mm. um, and where you can kind of bring uh, people into an institution that can help them get skills where they are mm. and they, people will have quite a wild, you know, different range of skills. I think the institution of the library is one that served our country well. So that's where yeah. I would begin. Can I just make a quick comment on that is actually my first job was in my local library, Hounslow Library, shout out. Um, and I will look it up later, but Connor and I actually recorded an extra show all about libraries and how much I love them. So that will be in the show notes for yeah. you all to More podcasts to. about libraries, yes. <laughs> Everyone looks dead excited at that, Hannah. <laughs> well, you know, me and you can listen yeah, to that. Yeah, we'll love it. Yeah. I agree with um, <clears throat> a lot of what Alison said, and I thought the point about libraries is a really interesting one, actually. Um, uh, and there is a real problem uh, in a lot of uh, the country, which where since the deindustrialization of the 1980s, the economic heart has been ripped out uh, of communities and nothing has come back in its place. And Labour was in government, was able partly uh, to help these communities by investing a lot in public services, but of course, when austerity came in 2010, uh, that uh, began to see a reduction uh, in, in those benefits. And we never, uh, we, we, we were very good at reviving uh, and investing 
in the heart, in the cities of the north, the big cities uh, were transformed, I think, uh, under the uh, under the Labour governments, uh, but outside the cities, we've we never found a, a sort of activist industrial policy uh, that would enable a new generation of private sector business uh, to thrive uh, in the towns uh, that had suffered from deindustrialization. It's it's actually a very very difficult question how you do this. It's a really hard policy question. Mm but I think it, it should be one at the top of our thinking. But could I just make another point, which is that I think if you say who is responsible for Brexit, it's the political class in Britain, because they never made a consistent case from the late 1970s until the referendum uh, for British membership of the European Union. Mm. Um, you know, the easiest thing under the Labour government was to get a good press story uh, <coughs> by uh, going to Brussels, having a row, uh, at battling for Britain and coming back and, say you, and saying you'd won. Uh, now, that isn't the way to win support uh, for the concept of the European Union. And the other point I'd make about the, as a passionate pro-European is that I think far too much of the debate is centered on economics. I support Europe because I believe in a united Europe. I think without a united Europe, I think it's been the most successful peace project in history. And without a united Europe, without working closely with our friends and neighbors who share our same interests and values, we'll never be able to tackle the big challenges uh, that we face in the world, like uh, climate change and environmental depredation, uh, like migration and the problems of, of development, uh, like, uh, uh, you know, the arms race and, and, uh, uh, and how, to, how to control nuclear weapons. I mean, we'll never be able to address those countries without work uh, those problems without working with the countries that are closest to it and I think closest to us and I think given the increasingly threatening world that we face the political case for working closely together in Europe gets stronger by the day yet there's something very curious about our politics that means we're not prepared to make it okay fantastic um I want to move on to talk about one last thing about the Labour Party. I know Steph gave an excellent set of opening remarks um, earlier where she talked about anti-Semitism within the party. And I know it's something that we've covered a lot. And also the fact that members of the party for various reasons have sadly chosen to leave us and become members of the independent group. Um, clearly, we all know that the way to achieve social justice is for Labour to be in power. Well, that's what I believe anyway. Um, it seems to do that. I mean, JLM, the Jewish Labour Movement, took the decision for the meantime to stay within the movement and continue to fight. And that was fantastic of them. And I really respect them for that and show them loads of solidarity. But it's clear that we need to rebuild trust with the community. Um, how do you think we can do that? Well, I think, it, I think it will be really hard, but I think that the, I mean, the really shocking news, although, I think probably for the best is the Equality and Human Rights Commission stepping in. I mean, it's really, really shocking that it's got this bad. Mm -hmm. But I think actually their independence 
has a lot to offer us mm. in this situation. Um, and I think that we have to request in the most stern and serious terms mm. that every party official at a senior level cooperates with that investigation. Mm. I think there's a broader thing, though, which is about being able to be honest and self-critical. Because I think, you know, I come from a part of the world where anti-Semitism is not well understood um, in Merseyside. Um, I don't think... <sighs> I don't think a lot of people really understand it and they certainly don't understand the way that it often represents itself of accusations of unjust power um, as, as racism. Um, and because the Labour Party stands up against unjust power, it's too easy to, to fall into that trap. So I think we have to demonstrate a new level of honesty and self-reflection um, and, and, that responsibility is on all of us. Stella Carisi organised a large, large group of Labour MPs writing to JLM last week, saying that what well, saying the things that we will do to try and uh, help the party understand it, organising training and um, being trying to be a force for good. But it's very difficult, and I too kind of really stand with colleagues who've had a terrible time over the past year. Again, I agree totally with what Alison said. All I'd say on the positive side is that I was at the most inspiring meeting I've been to for a long time in the Labour Party on Wednesday night uh, when Tom Watson came mm. to address uh, the Labour peers. And he described, he said that, you know, anti-Semitism is part of a much wider crisis uh, in the Labour Party, and it is a real crisis about the party's future. Don't let's pretend that it isn't a fundamental crisis about the party's future. Um, and uh, he's described Lucianas Berger's decision to leave uh, as the biggest disgrace in Labour's mm. history, that it had ever mm. been allowed to happen. It was a shameful and a terrible disgrace. Um, and he set out a program of what we needed to do. The fundamental problem, of course, is the leadership. And the fact that after Jeremy Corbyn's victory the second time round, he had an opportunity to bring the Labour Party together again. Uh, but this hasn't happened. What you have is government by a faction against all the other legitimate parts of the Labour tradition, the Social Democrats, the Democratic Socialists, the Christians, the, uh, uh, the, you know, the Jewish Labour movement, the, uh, the people, um, uh, pacifists, um, all the different parts of the Labour tradition feel alienated uh, by what is happening. And the worst case of it is anti-Semitism. And Tom has, I think, the reason I felt inspired by this was because this was the first occasion in more than 10 years when I felt the Labour Party was being offered real leadership uh, about how it can restore uh, and rescue its future. Um, and so I've become very hopeful. I actually think that the, 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 the very regrettable uh, departure of 
Chuka and other MPs has actually triggered something uh, which could be the start of a decisive uh, fight back uh, within the Labour uh, tradition. Um, and I, I'm actually full of hope now that we will come together and try and save the party uh, that we love, as Hugh Gateskill said. I'm not Jewish, so I don't think it's for me to say what um, the Labour Party should do to make it up to the Jewish community. I think it's for the Labour Party to ask the Jewish community <laughs> what it should do to make it up to the Jewish community. And, and then ideally to do it. It's the two things. Uh, and, and I think the second part might be harder possibly than the first part. Um, but I think broader than that, I mean, I think picking up on something what you were saying, I mean, anti-Semitism is a sort of visible expression of a bigger problem, which is why has the Labour Party found it so impossible to move on from this? Because it doesn't take decisive action. It doesn't kick out people who might as well have a huge flag planted on their head saying, I am an anti-Semite. So if you don't do that, you're never going to um, hold people's confidence. And why doesn't it kick them out? Because too often they are personal friends, supporters, allies, of the leader or people close to the leader, or if not, they're people that he recognizes as a type. They're people among whom he has spent his political life. And not only that, they're loyal. They're on the right side. They're the right people. So if they're saying the wrong thing, that doesn't matter. And the flip side of that is, if you are the wrong person, the, 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 you know, the wrong side of the Labour Party, nothing you say is right. And actually, it's your ideological loyalty that determines how anything you say should be taken. And that causes one problem, one very obvious problem, which is tolerance of people who shouldn't be tolerated. And it causes the flip side of a problem, which is intolerance of people who have something useful to offer the Labour Party and are already within the Labour Party and often within Parliament within the Labour Party. And I think those two problems are related. And, you, you know, solve one, you'll solve the other. Thank you. Um, I'm mic'd up like Mr. Rosemary's room. Um, so I guess... The last thing, well, I sort of want to move on from anti-Semitism and talk very briefly. I realise we're running out of time, I think. Yes, that's a yes. And um, so I was looking for when I went. Um, I want to talk really briefly about Islamophobia and the Tory party as well. And um, just because we saw Andrea Leadsom um, in the chamber and I genuinely wanted to hit my head against a wall uh, until I couldn't remember anything anymore. Um, when Nazar asked, um, so she's an MP from Bradford, sorry. Um, excellent, no money for MPs, that's a good start. Um, asked Andrew Ledson whether we could have a debate in Parliament about Islamophobia. She referred her to the Foreign Office, which um, I don't know about you, but I don't really think that, unless the they're about to say that we need to send all the Tory MPs abroad. I yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I mean, like I've tried to not be in, in the mode of being hypocritical. So I think we all have to say that like, especially given the previous conversation and, and Gabby's very correct comments, I think about um, anti-Semitism and the Labour Party. Um, you know, there's no, there ought to be absolutely no kind of like happiness at Tory MPs. Mm. Uh, saying and doing the wrong thing, whether it's the Islamophobia um, or um, or Amber Rudd's um, very, very unfortunate use of words the other day, even though she was trying to make a kind of good point about the way that Diane Abbott was treated. She just did it in a really cack-handed way. But um, I would say um, 
I mean, the Tory party has no reason to ask me for advice, but let's suppose for a second that they did. What I would say to them is two things. Firstly, don't do what we did. Don't don't try and make excuses for yourselves. Don't say, I mean, Nikki Morgan of all people was saying, I've never seen Islamophobia in the Tory party. Oh God. Like, come on, Nikki, you're supposed to be one of the sensible ones. <laughs> anyway, so don't, don't, if, if somebody says it's a problem, especially if it's somebody um, uh, as serious um, as Baroness Farsi, then don't ignore them. And secondly, I think actually what they should do is ask Naz Shah for a bit of advice on how to uh, make recompense mm. and cope if you have offended a community. Because she actually, she, people forget that Naz was suspended uh, from the Labour Party mm. when she was found to have... Um, you know, engaged in anti-Semitic stuff on Facebook. And she took the responsibility on herself, on her own shoulders, to go and listen to the Jewish community and to spend time with them and to have the most difficult of conversations mm. and to really understand what she'd got wrong. And I think that if you can do that as a politician, if you can apologise and mean it, then the public will just get behind you. And so that's what I think we've all got to do. I, you know, I think about that um, situation with Nasha all the time, and I have such respect for her for doing that. And I think there really is something to be said about, you know, just jumping on somebody because they're, you know, your your political opposite uh, or or whatever it is. And then there's a difference in the comments in in the chamber just a few days ago. And you know, I saw that Amber Rudd tweet the BBC tweet you know saying what she said and I was like she said what and I went back and looked at it and I thought about how many conversations I'd had within my 10 years in the Labour Party where a colleague may have used that word and I would just sort of take them aside and say just FYI <laughs> uh, we don't say that anymore and it's it's but, but people that are willing to learn and have those conversations and truly apologize, I, I would take that any day and I'd be more than happy to spend all my time speaking to all those people who are willing to listen to say like, we don't say this. Maybe let's use this, you know, this uh, choice of words instead. So I just wanted to highlight the difference between those. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, so I had written some games, but I'm running desperately over time. What? You mean no quiz? Yes. Oh, I know. I know. They will be back. Don't worry. I did spend like quite a few hours on them um really enjoyed it so they'll return in a future podcast um but just before we go can i get a quick fire quiz see quick some quick fire questions um and can you all tell me what you think we have to do as progressives in the labor party forward from here in one sentence because i like making things difficult (laughs) come on roger Uh, what we have to do is uh fight for our values, have new ideas uh, for the future, uh, recognize that there is a big crisis coming with the prospect of a a, a targeted attempt to deselect large numbers of our parliamentary party, and we have to be the people of the future, uh, and we also have to be organized to fight this attempt to destroy the Labour Party. I think that we need to be the leaders on the ground in our communities. I think we need to be the ones who are speaking to our neighbours and our friends um, and empowering them to get involved and uh, contribute to politics in a way that they perhaps haven't had an opportunity to do so before. I think the Labour Party needs to be ready to win a general election. I think progressives need to stay cheerful. It's the most appealing thing. (laughs) It's the most appealing thing about progressive politicians generally is that they're willing to see the best in other people, that they are always optimistic about the future, that they want to move towards the future, not the past. And I think if you lose that at a time when everyone else is very angry and bitter, you've lost something that was very important. Thank you very much, Gabby. I think on that note, with the sun streaming into the room, it's time to wrap up. Thank you all very much. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was One in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons, and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer, Caroline Crampton. Mm-hmm.